0: you're listening to a radio stockdale podcast podcasts that are inspiring interactive and feature various discussions of leadership ethics and law philosophy at the movies. where We discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always, Sean Baker. And today's show is brought to you by Findus frozen peas and Paul Mason wine, by the way. Anyway, today's topic is the 1962 film, The Trial. I had to get my Orson Welles joke. I probably will make at least one more the yeah. show, but... Oh, boy, I have to describe the plot of this movie.
1: I was I was really looking forward to this. Um, um, I'm glad that's your role. Have at it. <laughs> yeah, I
0: mean, there's a reason when anybody describes a situation that's sort of bizarre, strange, surreal, almost cruel, they say it's very Kafka-esque. Yeah. And I think that's what he gets with this story. So to the the bare-bones basic of this story is if we follow a man named Joseph K. And we he, these uh, policemen enter his apartment, start interrogating him, asking him all these questions. They eventually tell him that he is to be arrested and charged with the crime. Now, throughout the entire movie, we have he is never told what the crime is, and we never figure out what the crime is. So we, don't, he's probably innocent, but we don't even know what he's been uh, accused of. But he's not taken to prison. They say he's allowed to resume his everyday life, and so he goes there. But it has an effect on him. The landlady sort of asks him all these questions, and then uh, he tries to talk to this dancer neighbor next door. And she, you know, she sort of pushes him out after they have an argument. And then there's these, we constantly see these three employees at co workers at his work. They're there when he's first, you know, interrogated by the police. And even when he goes back to work, they're constantly spying on him. And so that's going on. And then his. He has a cousin, right? Yeah, a little cousin. And she starts, you know, she's trying to check up on him, see how he's doing. But his boss is concerned about the arrest. But he also is thinking that there's some sort of inappropriate relationship going on between Joseph and the cousin. And we find out that also the dancer neighbor next door, she was booted out of her apartment, maybe due to his arrest. But he has this sort of trial he goes to later on. It's this courtroom where it's just filled with people they're you know all they're even overhead they're like all these balcony and he makes these accusations against the examining magistrate he makes a big impassioned speech but they're sort of laughing at him and when he in the middle of his speech there's a guard uh, grabbing this woman and they're all looking at that instead of focusing on him and then later on this is, this is just it's it's these sort of c- kind of scenes after scenes so he goes to he's considered by his uncle to go see a man called the advocate a legal advocate who will help his case and this man's played by Orson Welles he's usually just stays in his bed so i don't know if he's handicapped but he doesn't move around a lot and when they're examining his case um He moves—there's a woman who is the mistress of the advocate, and he just starts talking with her instead of seeing the advocate. And he later on, he goes—he just sort of fires the advocate later on. He doesn't think he's going to do anything because there's this other guy who's also having an affair with the mistress of the advocate who— who's basically been with the advocate for five years and been trying to get his case, and he's been throwing all this money to try to get cleared, and he's basically been like a dog Great. considered to the advocate. And so he gets rid of him, and eventually, as he's, he go, he tries to talk to a portrait artist of the judges to see if he can get into favor with them to drop the case, but it doesn't look good. And eventually, he's walking around one night, and there's this priest... Who says now he's been condemned to death. And then he gets um, taken in by these two uh, policemen or guards. They throw him in this ditch and hole or hole. And they both pass around this knife. They don't want to do it to execute him. Yeah. They don't do it. And he sort of laughs at them, saying, you're not going to get me to do it. You're going to have to do this yourself. And eventually they just take a, lo- a stick of dynamite, light the fuse, throw it in his hole. He laughs at him. And he picks it up. It goes... He's about to pick it up, I think. But it just it cuts it and then it explodes. And that's the end of the movie. Yeah. That is a very bare-bones plot of this movie because it is, I think, intentionally confusing. This is yeah. this is why, it's, why these situations are called Kafka-esque because it is very bizarre. It yeah. is very surreal.
1: Kafka is known for writing short stories that are basically uh literary uh, uh uh embodiments of nightmares and uh the most famous one being metamorphosis mm-hmm. right but this one i mean i think it's it's quite intentional that it is constructed as if it were a nightmare the film captures the flow of the book in 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 that way and yes. the, and the film is very much has all the illogical and tenuous connections that your typical nightmare does up to and including the beginning of the film he is wakened out of his sleep by these uh policemen uh so that gives you a uh, i think a big clue that at least at the surface level um this story is an attempt to just uh you know take a nightmare and um, um put it in literary form in case of the book and in uh filmic form in the case of this film and that's certainly one level of it And, and and just to kind of strain that analogy at all cost or that comparison at all cost uh like like nightmares um at least from the psychoanalytic point of view um it cries for interpretation and like a lot of nightmares and dreams um uh this thing is, as I, I've used this phrase before with different films we watched, this thing is a bit of a Rorschach inkblot test. Um, there are, I think, several possible interpretations, all of them probably about equally valid, or different, uh, you could say different uh, layers of interpretation or meaning to this thing. And that is all very intentionally constructed, I think, um, obviously by Kafka, but Wells. I mean, he 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 reveled in, especially in these later films of his, mm-hmm. this kind of abstract um, uh, uh, commentary and and uh, Rorschach ink blot construction, so that his audiences can try and figure out exactly what what is intended here, what's going on, and so forth. Um, definitely, uh, definitely, that first layer is you know this is this is intended to have us live through a nightmare in 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 the form of a film i think yeah
0: because especially even just that beginning scene with the dialogue i mean practically all the dialogue it it, you know the people the way the dialogues you know go on and the length of the conversation it's not your typical you know conversation because he's you know he's talking to the police and they're like why? Why do you think I'm this person? Why would you change your clothes in the hall? And why do you th- ovular? That's not a real word. And they it, it keep going bogged down, and like the, it just keeps getting lost in the original point yes. of the conversation is muddled, and that keeps going on and on. It almost makes it, it. It gets a little. I remember the first time I watched this movie. It it was very frustrating just because of the, the nonsensicalness of it. But yeah. like as as you read the book, because then I read the book and then I watched it the second time. I I understood it a little bit more and appreciated it a little bit more. Now this is my third time watching it, so it's still like you see, just it's it's it drives you a little bit crazy. But it does. It's like you said, it's on purpose because this isn't real logic; it's a nightmare logic.
1: Yes, exactly right. And uh, they they the book and the film both do a very good job. Of capturing something that does happen in dreams and particularly nightmares, um, the curious experience of being uh, trapped within uh, a place, a building, a series of buildings, maybe even a town uh, that is like a maze and you transition between different parts of this building or this town or this maze in a way that is illogical, but because you're confronted with these other people and these other things going on in the new room, the oddness doesn't strike you or you forget about it because you feel like you have to deal with what you're being presented with immediately and try and figure out what they're trying to tell you or what they're trying to do to you. Um, we see that happen with jo- jo- uh, uh, Mr. K, Joseph yeah. K, all the way through this film. He's he's trying to make sense out of what's going on, but because of the odd transitions and the fact that he's kind of thrown into the situation, um, you can kind of see it's a lost cause all the way through. But he still manages to do so. And again, that's a very nightmarish kind of a scenario um because it, it, we've all had those kinds of experiences in dreams. Um, you forget you're in the dream, and it, things are bewildering, uh, scary, illogical, but you don't realize that they are so because they're not real, and you try desperately to make sense out of what is happening with you. So, you know, that like I said, that's that's one obvious, and I think the most obvious interpretation of this this work. Uh, another one um, that is uh, uh, kind of a one layer removed or maybe one layer up in the uh, Rorschach inkblot possible readings of this thing is the fact I think there's, there's some kind of reflection here on the fact that um, to some extent human life is like this as well. Although, you know, we have on average 75, 80 years uh, to figure things out, as it were. Still, uh, that in in terms of, you know, cosmic time, it's an eye blink. It's not even an eye blink of time. And we're all kind of thrown into the world and trying to figure it out. And we're not all quite so isolated as Joseph K. is. But you see that... uh, um, everybody in his world to some extent is as well. I mean, I mean, I know there's a brief bit of commentary or dialogue at, toward the end of the film where the advocate is uh, um, confronting him again. And he says, you know, you're, you're showing the signs of uh, schizophrenia and that you think there's this grand conspiracy that's trying to get you. Um You don't get the feeling, though, that The Advocate is in on a conspiracy. I get the feeling with that character and most of the characters in this film that they are all equally adrift and somewhat in the dark about their place in the world and so forth and trying to make sense out of it and generating, as you pointed out, this kind of (laughs) gibberish and slightly illogical uh, dialogue in their attempts to make sense out of it. If that makes sense mm-hmm. um, so again, I think that's kind of ref- it's a very kind of existential theme, right that we're mm-hmm. we're uh, thrown into the world and have to make sense out of it and um, not given a lot of time and a lot not a lot of clues as to uh, that would lead us toward as it were, the correct reading right And it's a very kind of absurdist mm-hmm. theme, right that the uh, uh, existentialists are big on, certainly Kafka.
0: And what's you talk about Kafka, um, what I thought was interesting, I mean, this is a story of a man who is, you know, he's arrested by the law, never told of the crime, and his pursuit to find justice, to be, you know, cleared of the crime, he has no idea what he's being charged with, is hopeless, and he's basically, the, the law is being judge, jury, and executioner, and they have no attempt at interest in helping him, or he kind of, he at one point he goes to the station and talks to other people who have similar cases and they've been d- dealing with the same thing. Like there's this old man and then the yeah. one guy who is working with the advocate who's been basically at it for years. It makes you think that this is like a f- commentary on fascism or a police state or something. So you're thinking, oh, he's German. And that rise of the Nazi party. But this was written in 1914. Yeah. This was even before World War One. Yeah. And he died in 1924. So even by the time he was gone, Hitler was still nine years away from become, taking over power. So it's you almost wonder if, was he seeing where things were going 20, 30 years down the line? Because he did work in law at, before he became a writer.
1: Yeah. Um, I'll tell you the, the parallel I... I That struck me, historical parallel, wasn't Nazi Germany so much as uh, uh, Soviet Russia. Because people would very often end up in this kind of legal limbo and be put in jail for extended periods of time, never be told what their charges were, and be shuffled from camp to camp, kind of waiting to find out their fate. Um, there's a, a great... Um, Novel from 1941 called Darkness at Noon by author Arthur Custler that uh, tells the story of a party apparatchik that ends up being arrested. And it's kind of interesting. He kind of knows it will happen and he kind of knows this is how the communists work um, in attempts to control not only thought, but the people that will be part of the party. And uh, it's in this being in this kind of legal limbo land um, is uh, another um, very striking element in um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's uh, Gulag Archipelago. He he was stuck in these places. He talks to people in the camps that have been stuck in this kind of legal limbo for a long period of time. So you ask where did uh, kafka get this idea yeah, and was this he is having still three some years kind of a,
0: before the russian revolution
1: was he having kind of a premonition of, of this c- quite literal uh uh real world kind of nightmare uh it's possible it's possible um and i'm not sure what to uh, think I, i'm not quite sure if there was anything uh like that going on in Uh, his day, as thoroughgoing as it was, I tend to think it it might be just a coincidence that that's the case. Uh, And again, this is me reading into my Rorschach, ink blot. Um, I I think he wants us to think long and hard exactly uh, uh, about what exactly this law is, or this legal system that is created in this story. Um, and I think it's important that uh, this this kind of fable bookends the film that uh, Orson Welles uh, voices at the beginning of the film, at the end of the film, basically it tells the story of a, a guy that's been sitting in front of a doorway to the law for his entire life, trying to get uh, an entrance into the law. And there's this guard there. And the guard keeps telling him, no, I can't let you in. I can't let you in. And eventually, um, toward the end of his life, he says, "I'm, I'm sorry, I have to close the door now, right? And then he tells him, it's very curious, that that door was meant only for him. So you're never allowed in to see the law, so to speak. Not even the guard is allowed in to see the law so that... Kind of makes you uh, ask what what does the law represent here, and again I'm kind of going back to that one possible reading, um, and I think it's a religious reading, and I, I don't know what exactly Kafka's religious views were. He was he was Jewish, I believe. Okay, um, I don't know if he had fallen out of the faith or not, but uh, one possible reading here is is to say that that. Parable and this whole story, where uh, Mr. K never finds out what's really going on and why he's being accused, is to illustrate um, the impossibility of man being able to fully comprehend the plan for the world that God has, um, either because constitutionally he's unable to, because he's very finite and, uh, 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 in, in comparison to God, quite ignorant. Or he's purposefully being held out and not allowed to see it. I mean, there's, those are two possible readings of it here, and I, I think that's a admittedly kind of stretched reading. But I, I think it is, to some extent, perhaps a uh, a meditation on the problem of suffering, pain, and evil in the world. Um, like I said, it's a, it may be a bit of a stretch, but I think that's there.
0: I th- because. That story, it's called "Before the Law." Like the advocate says that you know this story will explain your situation. They talk about this as a story in this world that has been told many times. And Joseph K. says, "Well, you tell it me it's this, but it's been debated by many scholars with many different interpretations." Yeah, and when he's saying like he's trying to gain entrance to the law, I thought it was a way of saying only a few people will ever, you know, when it comes to. Justice, Or, you know, saying they've been accused of something that only a few will ever get the, you know, get it, get the justice they deserve, whether it's seeing somebody being punished for the crime or being clear when you're innocent. I mean, one of the things I was thinking of that there was a famous documentary called The Thin Blue Line about this guy in Dallas, Texas, in the 70s, who was accused of killing a police officer and the documentary shows that not only was he innocent they point the direction of this other guy who was seems was already in prison but is Guilty of that crime, but he still this man was on death row now Thankfully because of the popularity of the documentary mm-hmm. they reviewed the case and now he was you know released Yeah, but it does think that you know, this is a guy who you know He would think like well the evidence is you know I didn't do it. the evidence should clearly show that I didn't do it But he was still found guilty and if it wasn't for that documentary he would have been sentenced to death and there have been Cases yeah. where people have been executed when it's later found out that they were innocent
1: right now, the thing I would say about, I don't know if this story holds out any kind of hope like that. <laughs> it, it doesn't, seems, no. It doesn't. And it, it just seems like it, not only Mr. K, but everybody involved in the story is hopelessly admired, uh, or, I mean, caught in the mire of the story and, and not going to be able to extricate themselves on it and find justice. You just don't get any impression that J- Joseph K. found justice here. And this gets back to the very end of the story. Um, if you if you watch the footage and freeze the footage up very closely, um, I, I think Wells is playing with us with the end. Because, by the way, this is not an ending in the book. Uh, I, I don't remember if the book ends up, I don't think...
0: I think they just the two guards kill him, and the last thing he says is like a dog, which is yeah. he's describing his situation.
1: Yeah, and they use the knife. Yes, is that correct. Yeah, it's not so,
0: passed around like it is in the movie. At least right. I don't think.
1: So uh, even even more grim. Uh, there's a little bit of an ambiguity at the end of the film, but uh, so they throw the he's in the hole right, and the the two can't bring themselves to stab him and kill him up close and personal. So they scramble up out of the hole one of them just as a nightmare would have it just happens to have some dynamite on him Mm -hmm. right so he pulls out the dynamite they light the fuse they throw it in and as uh uh, joseph k is screaming you're gonna have to do it you're gonna have to do it right pointing out that you know you've got to kill me up close and personal i'm not going to make it easy on you um Now, it falls into the hole that, you know, there's a couple of shots where they show the two guys and him screaming at them. And then it looks like he bends down and grabs uh, something and then throws it up out of the hole. Problem is, if you look really carefully at that freeze frame it and, and go slowly through that little part of that scene. He's not grabbing anything. If it most, it might just be a rock, but it's certainly not the dynamite. Not, oh, okay. And in any case, it, 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 there is an explosion, and it looks like you know it's the, the shot is a shot of uh, kind of the landscape. It, it right? looks
0: like it, the dynamite never left the hole. Yeah,
1: it doesn't look so. It doesn't look like he survived, and uh, I, I think. I think the message there is that he's left to die equally in the dark about his situation. He hasn't learned much at all. And you can kind of see it in the faces of the two executioners, too, who, uh, if I'm not mistaken, are also the policemen that showed up at the... Am I wrong I, about Those it? are two different okay, guys. Okay, so they're two different guys. So. But they're not quite sure why, what they're doing, why they're there. They do. They know what they have to execute, but not. Neither one of them has the uh, ability to force themselves to kill another human being. So they, uh, up close, at any rate. So they do it at a distance. That's an interesting insight, right there. By the way, too. Um. But again, I think that's probably again on my favorite. Uh, Uh, interpretation here, Mm -hmm. Uh, an indicator, again, or he's symbolic of the fact that we all end up, I think, uh, leaving life, dying, uh, not knowing much more than we did going in at the beginning. In terms of the big, big ultimate questions, what it all means and so forth. um, And I I guess Kafka is saying, even even for those that do uh, adopt belief systems that give answers to those kinds of questions there's lingering doubt that may you know it's it's possible that i'm wrong about this and so forth so that being the case and it also being the case that the ultimate explanation is very carefully hidden from you as we see with him in the story it's very carefully hidden from him uh, uh who the ultimate judge is and what the charges are right that, kind of that way with us, too. And that law, the lawgiver, I think that's the intent of the, the uh, symbolism of that doorway in that parable. Behind that doorway is the lawgiver. Either God or at least an explanation as to of, of, uh, why we're here, what we're doing here, and what the future holds for us, um, seems to be hidden, and it may be the case that we can never get to
0: it. Because when he dies. The door is closed, so it's yes. not like once he dies, he's allowed entry.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's the bleak message in this thing. There, there is no justice, so to speak, and everybody's kind of stuck in the bowels of that justice system. They do a great job in this film. Going, he goes from building to building, hallway to hallway, uh, uh, even runs across a courtyard and into another building. And here are all these poor souls kind of stuck in the system, stuck in the machine, waiting in line, been there for a long time, uh, despondent, uh, still questioning sometimes, but a lot of them are just simply resigned to the fact that there is no explanation. And uh, he never quite gets that resigned. But that's what's curious about it. you even see that with the people that are supposed to be able to help him. The advocate, he's kind of just cynical and sitting in bed all the time, right? Yeah, yeah. And that artist, he's kind of cynical, too. Titarelli, I think it was his name, was yeah, yeah. yeah, Uh And he really has no, he can't really help him. He has no real explanations and so forth. And everybody in that story is in the same boat.
0: Getting close to end of my questions, is there anything else we need to discuss before we wrap up? I will say, because we talked about this with Citizen Kane, you said, I mean, sorry, Orson Welles and his relation to his other works. And I think a lot of times with Orson Welles, Most people just watch Citizen Kane because of its reputation. They don't really move on to his other stuff. And I feel, especially in his later career, this is more in line with that. Because even... Even though like Touch of Evil is definitely more you know as a straightforward narrative, there's a kind of a lot of strange scenes with weird dialogue. Particularly Dennis Weaver's character in that movie acts strange, Mm -hmm. and then you have F for Fake, which is like a quasi-fiction slash documentary, and there's strange stuff in there. I feel this is more in line, especially with Wellsworth, and I would even say Citizen Kane is, even though everybody's seen Citizen Kane.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It it is indicative of his. His uh, progression from more straightforward narrative to more and more abstract works of film, uh, F for Fake is probably the pinnacle in that in in, mm-hmm. in that regard, um, but you know maybe not so much in F for Fake, but at least up to this film, there there still are cine- cinematic consistencies. He always is very effective using shadow and light angles, um, deep. Uh, perspectival shots and he's still using that here i think his use of setting is extraordinary that the office scenes are uh strangely spectacular Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and and the transition from that scene to the little weird closet where these two guys are being beaten up is also very Wellsian
0: yeah um, even if you, know, you don't you can't follow along with the story and if it frustrates you too much you can still enjoy looking at all the production design and the cinematography and the yeah. lighting
1: and uh, absolutely and I found myself doing that because I thought uh, I was getting frustrated with this film Let's let's get let's get to the narrative and we never really get to the narrative mm-hmm. because it is a nightmare and the only other thing technically technical that I had issue with was I don't know why he chose to do this and he did a good job with it, but still it's apparent and it bugs me. And it, it it's very, it makes the watching the film difficult for me. Overdubbing the, almost the entire film. I don't know why that was necessary. I know he claims it makes it much easier to hear. Uh-uh. It, it, yeah. It's discombobulating, but then again, that's maybe that's been, why he did it. I, I noticed that a lot too. Yeah.
0: But yeah, the one thing that was kind of like, he plays one song over and over again. It's the Adagio by L- aldenoni and it oh, just yeah, yeah. it goes it goes on i was like okay this is like that uh, in the mood for love where you just hear the same song over and over and they're like that'll drive you crazy along with the dialogue
1: yeah and uh, it's interesting i know I, maybe perhaps it's foreshadowing his death at the end there but uh, other than that you know like i said technically stunning film frustrating film
0: Purposefully frustrating. Purposefully
1: frustrating. Purposefully a warshock ink blot, just like Franz Kafka, I think, intended with the original story as well.
0: All right, thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. Oh, Radio Stockdale has always been known for its excellence. Here you can listen to podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and the Do-Over. Try to enjoy some Palmesan wine while you're at it. <laughs> if you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, reach episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at the sound of cinema.potomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the movies.